people don't really think about like the Go command being like a tool or like it does so many things, right? But it itself is a program and a lot of what it does, the way it interacts with modules, the way other tools talk to the Go program. So for example, the way Go proxy could use the Go program to download a module or list available versions is potentially a surprising fact because that is a tool that needs to be used by other programs. So it's not just like Go build and Go run manually run by humans. Big thanks to our partners, Linode Fastly and LaunchDarkly. We love Linode. They keep it fast and simple. Get $100 in credit at linode.com slash changelog. Our bandwidth is provided by Fastly. Learn more at fastly.com. And get your feature flags powered by LaunchDarkly. Get a demo at launchdarkly.com. This episode is brought to you by SourceGraph. SourceGraph is universal code search that lets you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Liu explaining the problems that SourceGraph solves for software teams. Yeah, so at a high level, the problems that SourceGraph solves, it's this problem of, for any given developer, there's kind of two types of code in the world, roughly speaking. There's the code that you wrote and understand, like the back of your hand, and then there's the code that some idiot out there wrote. Or, you know, alternatively, if you know you don't like the term idiot, it's the code that some inscrutable genius wrote and that you're trying to understand. And oftentimes that inscrutable genius is like you from, you know, a year ago. <laughs> and, and you're going back and, and trying to make heads or tails of, of what's going on. And really, SourceGraph is about making that code that some idiot or inscrutable genius wrote feel more like the code that you wrote and understand kind of intuitively. It's all about helping you grok all the code that's out there, all the code that's in your organization, all the code that is relevant to you in open source, all the code that you need to understand in order to do your job, which is to build the feature, write the new code, fix the bug, etc. All right, learn how SourceGraph can help your team at info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Again, info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Next Tuesday, we are recording episode 200, and we're playing a fun new game show with some old friends to celebrate. This is one you will definitely want to enjoy live. There is a link to the event page in the show notes. Subscribe to be notified. Okay, let's get on with the show. Here we go. Welcome to Go Time. On this week's episode, we are going to be talking about an important but little well-known team called the Go Tools team. Today, I am joined by a whole host of guests. We'll start with Daniel. So Dan contributes to Go in his spare time, maintains a few tools such as the Go Fumped Fork and Go Code Obfuscator, and runs a local meetup in Sheffield. Uh, how are you doing today, Dan? Good. Happy to be here. Awesome. We're also joined today by Paul Jolly. Paul is a core contributor on the Q project and helped start the Golang Tools Working Group. How are you today, Paul? Very good, thanks, Chris. Pleased to be here. Awesome. And joining us for the first time, we also have Ian Cottrell. He's the manager of the open source Go Tools team at Google. How are you today, Ian? Good. Yep. And finally, we have Marwan, who I think is also joining us for the first time here on GoTime. And Marwan is a Go developer at GitHub. He is a core maintainer of the Athens project and is an occasional contributor to GoPlease and the Go VS Code plugin. How are you today, Marwan? Good. The occasional is important because I don't do it a lot. <laughs> All right. So with those introductions out of the way, uh, let's talk about the, the Go Tools team. So let's start off with like some setting the scene, some history here. I think this is probably directed toward you, Dan and Paul. You know, what was the impetus for starting this Go Tools group that we have? I think we probably need to bring Ian in as well because Ian, am I right? We sort of exchanged a few messages between GopherCon just before GopherCon 2018 uh, about the need for sort of creating some sort of tooling around modules as it was evolving at that point. Yeah, I mean, this was really us trying to get all the people working on any kind of editor support to go together to talk about what we should be doing better. Because I, I felt that you know, when Go was first launched, it had amazing support for tools, and then it just it hadn't really kept up. 
and I felt like we were we were dropping the ball and that we needed to do something to, to get it moving again and, and become a leader rather than a follower once more. So this is 2018, Chris. It was when um, the GoFcom we were referring to here. And it was just as modules was starting to sort of be experimented with a bit. And I think Ian's point there about how a tooling could and should evolve, it sort of was spurred particularly by that experiment as it was being played out at the time. But I think there was sort of a lot of pent-up interest in this sort of conversation in any case. I think a number of Googlers were keen on having such a, a, it's actually called the GoTools Working Group, I think is its official title, but it didn't have that official title at the time. And, and it started with a round table, ad hoc round top table discussion um, at GoForCon 2018 with some very paltry snacks and drinks, I think, I seem to remember. It was a very cold conference room, but it was good. I think there was about, we had two sessions there and there was about 12 people on the first day and around 20 odd on the second. All the notes are linked from the wiki, which we can send a link to Chris afterwards. And as Ian said, it, we, I think we brainstormed a list of the tools that people were interested in. Generally, the sort of the workflow was that people were interested because they used this tool via their editor plugin. And at the time, this is pre go please, of course. So there were lots of ad hoc tools that were sort of muddled together in some ways by lots of ad hoc editor plugins. And so there was very little uniformity. And I think, again, that was one of the overriding goals that, or visions that people had is that, you know, what we can do better in this space, as Ian said. I also think another bit of context that might be useful for the listeners is that up until that point, a lot of the tools just worked. And then when modules came along, quite a, a significant amount of them had to be updated to work with modules, right? And that also included updating the libraries to support those features. So suddenly there was a need for many of us to start talking and figuring things out together. Marwan, you were definitely there at those first sessions. Yeah, I remember that GoForCon. I think I made it to the second session. I haven't looked back since. <laughs> <laughs> and that's worth saying, actually. I think there's been, Marwan is up there as well. Brian Mills, who's, who works on Command Go on the Go team, I think he's been to every single session bar one since then. And we have sort of monthly calls. And so that's a pretty good attendance record. I think Brian puts everybody else to shame, to be honest with you. And I think we've even had punters join from a car and a train and all sorts of places. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So with that kind of background you know, explained and settled, is there a charter or a, a mandate for this group? Or is it still just kind of like... Uh, we get together, we talk about tooling, and that's kind of it. Yeah, the the, uh, the wiki that I referenced earlier on has got, mandate is a very strong word, I think, and it sort of has connotations of power and clout. And the Tools Working Group has never really existed in that format. It's been people who are interested and motivated to talk about tooling and improving it, getting together and working out how best to solve some of the technical problems and also solve some of the problems around how to build consensus on the direction that certain things should take, you know, whether it be modules or anything else for that matter. And we can talk about a few more examples later on. So mandate is probably a little strong, but at the same time, we, charter is probably a little strong as well. But at the top of the wiki, to paraphrase it, is a group of people whose focus um, and interest is the development of tools for the Go language. And it stresses it's open to everybody. Tooling topics include, but are not limited to, code analysis, compilers, editor and IDE plugins, language servers, and standard libraries. So it's really, really broad. And quite honestly, we never limit it to that. And if anybody brings up a topic that they want to, to discuss, we're super open to that. And often the group ends up just being a conduit for introducing people or bringing people onto the session in order to have the right conversation. So there's lots of things, whether it just be getting feedback on ideas, the tools working group has been used as a group of trusted testers in the past for whether it be Google or Go related projects or, or others for that matter. Just things like proofreading of proposals, blog posts, talking through design ideas. It's a very, very open agenda and open to absolutely anybody. There's absolutely no sort of registration or anything required. You just turn up to the call um, and join in. Yeah. And to add to what Paul just said, I would say that the concept of tools is a bit fuzzy. Because, for example, is an editor a tool? If I write something that just happens to use Go and some of the libraries that we talked about, is that still a tool, even if it doesn't work with Go code? 
we usually have sections about like, what are you working on that's cool? Or what would you like to see happen? And that's more like open mic kind of thing. And people can bring up any topic they, they feel is related or important enough to bring up. Yeah, from my perspective, I kind of think of anything a developer working in Go code would interact with counts. Doesn't matter what it is. As soon as it's specific to Go and the developer would be touching it, that's a tool. For instance, the discovery site clearly falls into that as far as we're concerned. And a lot of discussion of that has happened in that group. I think it's the way it started too. I remember at GopherCon, I think the very first thing was the Go team was demoing or even like giving like beta access to the early version of package site was there. So in a way, it was like the first big thing that the, the group was talking about. All right. I think that's a, that's a pretty good segue, too. And the, the next question I had, which is, uh, you know, what has this group worked on? I think the, the obvious things that are out there are like, you know, GoPlease and the editor integrations. But are there other tools? I mean, you just said the package discovery site. But are there like other tools that the group has worked on that, have, that has helped kind of shepherd them into the Go community and help with their development? I'd say the Go command. So a lot of the discussion is literally the Go command itself. People don't really think about like the Go command being like a tool or like being because it's like it does so many things, right? But it itself like is like a a program and a lot of what it does, the way it interacts with modules, the way other tools talk to the Go program. So if, for example, like the way Go proxy could use the Go program to download a module or list available versions is potentially a surprising fact because that is a tool that needs to be used by other programs. So it's not just like go build and go run manually run by humans. That actually gets discussed quite a bit there too. I'm sure others might have even more obscure examples. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of the Go command, almost any tool that looks at Go code ends up having to invoke Go list somewhere inside it at the moment. And it's often hidden by library, but it's almost always there. So it does come up a lot. Because we also, we discuss changes that tools might need as well as tools themselves a lot i think it's also worth stressing i'll, I'll come back to go please in a second but all of this this list of tools that we're talking about now are sort of in some way official or semi-official as part of the go project but the discussion in the tools working group is certainly not limited to that so if people want to bring tools that they have written whether it sort of be in like an experimental form or a tool that is official as far as their company is concerned and bring that into the discussion as some sort of experience report or design ideas or just kicking ideas around. Very open to that sort of thing. And I think that's been a large part of the, if you like, the methodology of the working group as well is very much driven by experience reports, experimentation in tools, trying out ideas, and just actually writing some code, getting some people to use it. And I think probably back to Marwan's example of the Go command, the go.work discussion about workspaces is a very good one where there's been a lot of design discussion that's happened sort of online and offline as part of the tools working group. That is part of the Go command, but there's a lot of experimentation been happening there. And that's trying to get experience reports from people. How does this work? How does it not work? Making sure that flows through Go, please make sure that workflow is consistent and kind of solves actual problems that people are are experiencing as far as workspaces in that particular example are concerned. But I think, Ian, Go Please is perhaps a, a particularly good example, isn't it, from your perspective? It is, yeah. I mean, I think to a large extent, Go Please wouldn't exist without the working group. A lot of the justification for it came from the conversations that we had in that group. It would have been very hard to justify the time and effort that we've poured into it without the, the evidence that it would actually be that useful and that the community as a whole would believe in it. But I also think the, the workspace example is very interesting because when I was originally thinking about the kind of workflows around the problems that workspaces is supposed to solve, I was assuming it could all be in a completely separate tool, that this wasn't a Go command thing. And it was only the conversations in that group and the, the other attempts to solve similar things like the Go hack program that kind of proved to me that actually we had to change the Go command in order to have a successful workspaces. So I think it's a, a very interesting demonstration of the kind of influence that group has. And I also think that's a good example in terms of experimentation, because initially many of us thought, oh, we're just going to fix this outside of the Go command. And that's where Roger's Go hack came out. But after some time with experimentation, we realized that had some major drawbacks, such as you know having to pick one main module to work from 
having to undo the replace directives later and so on. So I think it's really good that it's a space where you can bring up ideas, implement them, see what others think, and you don't have to go through a formal proposal process that may take months or weeks and then sort of have an official stamp of approval on any of your ideas. Another particularly good one from my mind is the, I forget which issue number it is, but it's where now you can run go install package at version as a way of sort of officially now installing in a sort of a global way outside of a module context, a command. And that is something that took a surprising amount of time to actually reach consensus on. And I don't think we're sort of even there as part of that discussion. Everybody's smiling because they they know this is something we've been discussing since pretty much day one as far as modules is concerned. I think that's also a very good example because there was a lot of disagreement on how best to go about that and what things to be solving for as part of it. Replace directives sort of loomed large for a long time. Should we respect replace directives? Should we not? What impact is that going to have? And I think that sort of, it was a very healthy discussion, good amounts of sort of constructive dissent in that proposal. And the design itself, there were many iterations, there were at least, there was at least one tool that was external from this that was created in order to try and experiment with kind of what is the right UI and UX around this. Lots of people are saying, okay, no, we can't, if we do it this way, it's not going to take solve this problem here or we won't take that into consideration. And I think it's probably been, what, a year and a half, two years, maybe even more than that, that it took us to get to where we are now on that. And we've to such a point where there's certain things that are still not finalized, but it's designed in such a way that we leave the door open to it. And the specific one there is whether we do actually respect replace directives. We might do that in the future for replace directives that are have a module target as opposed to a directory target. And that's a very specific detail, but it kind of talks to like the length of time and consideration that went into this design and proposal, where we had opinions from not only within the Go team, but significant numbers of opinions from outside as well. And a lot of discussion, taking time to go through it before finally, I can't remember when it finally landed, but maybe it was, I want to say 116, I think. Yeah. Daniel's nodding. Yeah. So yeah, there's, it's been a very good forum for discussing in sort of a live way, human to human, somewhat more thorny issues that where the nuance can get lost on things like a GitHub issue discussion or even over Slack, which is much more immediate. If you can see somebody when you're trying to get your point across, that has a, a much work well, for me, at least it has a much more positive effect on the communication. I can see somebody's frowning or, you know, waving their hands frantically as if to say, no, 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 stop there. Don't talk anymore. I don't know. I just find voicing dissent sounds like a sort of a very negative word, but it's a, it's a very positive thing in the context of the working group where I just find voicing that on a call much easier than thinking about rewording it 50 times in a GitHub issue or something like that. I find it much easier to bring up. And in that respect, anybody's welcome to bring anything for any issue that they have to the table. And that that's worked very well over the, the three years now. I think the experimentation point is a really important one too, particularly on, on things that the Go team ship it's very hard to experiment because as soon as it's in, you can't take it out again. And, you know, we really believe in experimentation. Russ did a a large post about this, but it's very hard to do with a lot of the things that that we ship. And the Tools Forum allows us to do experiments that have enough reach that we actually get a useful signal back from them as well. There's no point doing an experiment that nobody tries because it tells you nothing. Uh, So having that, that group of interested opinionated experts there to try something out and allow you to, to fail fast and back away from it is really key. So speaking of the these meetings that happen, uh, let's talk a little bit about them. Um, so how often are these GoTools working group meetings? You know, What do you usually discuss? Is there like a set agenda or is it more open or it's just kind of a discussion space? So we target about once per month, but in reality, it's more like about once every five weeks or so or six And the agenda is roughly, there's usually three main areas that we talk about. There's Command Go itself, because it's at the center of a lot of things. There's Go Please, and then there's Package Site, because those are, uh, outside of Command Go itself, they're like the largest tools out there in terms of users and development, right? And then we've got a couple of other miscellaneous parts of the agenda, such as the one I mentioned earlier about what are people working on, 
or do people have any other topics that they would like to bring up that don't fall into any of these categories? So I think what we do is on every rotation, anybody could host the meeting, which is basically kind of just run through the issues and the agenda. And it's sort of a nice like rotational participatory thing. We usually have about 20 to 30 total agenda items per call. So you have to think that we may, may have about three, four minutes per item, right? If one item is really big or really controversial, maybe it's going to be like eight minutes. But you have to think that this is not a call where we dive deep into topics. This is a call where we synchronize and we sort of get a common understanding. And maybe somebody hasn't been up to speed for some time and then they quickly get an idea and they might have some quick thoughts. But any deeper thoughts tend to go in places like GitHub where people actually have the time to write things down. Yeah, I think the only point I was going to say is a super open agenda. So typically what happens is if somebody wants to bring something up, there's a large group who exist in um, the, the tools channel on Slack. There's generally a bit of conversation, not necessarily though, in the Slack channel first, where people get a sense for, is this something that would be worth talking about? What are people's opinions on it? And then invariably it ends with somebody saying, can we add this to the agenda for the next call? It just gets put on there. And as Marwan was saying, whoever is then running the call is just sort of responsible for then, particularly if it's someone who's um, a newcomer to the group as well, really making sure that everybody feels welcome. So rather than putting things that at the bottom where someone may just happen to have mentioned it last, perhaps something that a newcomer has brought is sort of elevated somewhat in order that that person isn't just kept waiting right until the end of the call. We sort of try and mix things around a bit in order that there is a bit of variety in the, in the call as well. I was about to call it a show. Sometimes it's a show, but it's a call uh, officially. This episode is brought to you by our friends at LaunchDarkly. Feature management for the modern enterprise. Power testing in production at any scale. Here's how it works. LaunchDarkly enables development teams and operation teams to deploy code at any time, even if a feature isn't ready to release to users. Wrapping code with feature flags gives you the safety to test new features and infrastructure in your production environments without impacting the wrong end users. When you're ready to release more widely, update the flag status and the changes are made instantaneously by the real-time streaming architecture. Eliminate risk, deliver value, get started for free today at launchdarkly.com. Again, launchdarkly.com. Are there any big projects that's currently being worked on by the Tools Working Group? I know we mentioned the kind of multi-module workspaces, so if we maybe want to dive into that a little bit more, if there's or other cool, you know, interesting things that might be good for our listeners to hear about. Well, I guess another one of the large topics of conversation has been generics. That keeps coming up because that's obviously can have a huge impact on tools. So the Tools Group cares a lot. You know, we're having to change the core parsing libraries and type-checking libraries and the APIs need updating and all the tools need to know about that. Something we also need to worry about with generics, for example, and this might maybe gives an example of the trickier topics we talk about, and that is how do you enable the new feature without silently breaking any, any existing tools? Because, for example, if you, go, if you go into the AST package, which holds the types for the syntax nodes for a Go program, and you change the meaning of a syntax node, of a, of a struct type, for example, then an existing tool might continue using that and do something that's wrong. But nobody might notice for weeks or months, and the tool might be doing something completely wrong. So you have to think about how do you add the new feature, make it easy to use, but not silently change the behavior of existing code. I think this, I don't know, necessarily would classify them as new things, but I would say go please, um, package site, command go, they remain, as Daniel said, sort of constant themes throughout. So whatever is happening in those spaces and all the sort of the, the supporting packages that go with writing tools in Q, eh, in Go, excuse me, managed to slip Q in there unintentionally. Um, whilst all the work is done, and it's, it's definitely worth recognizing at this point, Rebecca Stambler and team who have worked on go please, we might talk about it quite a lot within the working group, but all the work there has been done by Rebecca and team, including the open source contributors as well. 
and Julie, as far as package site is concerned, they just remain constant themes. And so I would still class them as big things because let's take um, Go to Work, for example. Yes, that sort of feels like it's somewhat restricted to Command Go, but guess what? It then immediately involves Go Please as well. Generics has impacts across the board, and you can include package site in that as well. I think there are that sort of now speaks to how connected and related all these things are. That that they're always kind of big things, and it's what the group has, I think, done well is sort of understand how these things are connected and better understood that over time. And it's always about trying to refine that, of course, bring the right people into the conversation, understand where their concern, what their concerns might be with something. I just think a lot of the work that's been done via package site has been fantastic, for example. And the way that there's now a beta site as part of that, where we get sort of early preview of things via package site, it's a really great experience. And so in the small way that the working group has been part of that, it's been fun being part of it, but I personally think the result that's come out the the other side is, is great and adds a massive amount to every Go developer's workflow in a very positive way. For the listeners who might not be aware, what is the uh, package site that we've been referencing? Sorry, package site is package.go.dev, pkg.go.dev is now, I think it's probably more correctly referred to as the discovery site. Is that right, Ian? Yeah. So that's a way of discovering Go packages and Go modules, whether that just be by the name of the package or the module or the description. It's sort of the capability for sort of more deep search for for a package or module that might be useful to you is sort of is improving with time. And it replaces godoc.org, which again is one of those tools which was needed to be updated in some way for module support. And package site, as it is sometimes referred to, is then what came as the replacement for that. Although, Marwan, I think you also had uh, some, a project that you worked on as well. I forget the name of it. Apologies for that. Is it the one for upgrading the module import paths? Oh, no, I thought there was a documentation site as well. I may just be... Uh, oh, that was way early on before package site. Yeah, no, no. But I mean, that, that was sort of, that was one of the cool things is that people just turned up to meetings and said, oh, hey, I just hacked this together over the weekend as a, as a nice way of experimenting with this. And Marwan turned up to the call. I forget the name of it, Marwan. Uh, I think it was called ModDoc. <laughs> <laughs> just try to describe it in like three to six letters is usually how I go about naming. <laughs> Basically, at the time, Go modules was so like still so early that not a lot of the tools were updating themselves to be compatible with it. And I, at the time, the company I was working for, there was definitely a bit of a lack of observability or like access to shared modules. And so it was difficult for people to go see like symbols and, and documentation. So I built like a little thing that basically just does what package site does today on a much, much lower scale, um, a very you know minimal UI. And uh, it definitely sort of helped, uh, at least me, kind of steer the conversation about what I would love to see in package site. And like, for example, like viewing multiple versions or, or viewing whether like, oh, this version has a, a, a major version and you're viewing an older uh, major version and stuff like that. That's a really another, another really good example of experimentation there and just showing people like a show and tell type thing that does happen quite a lot of the time. But also how that, I think Marwan sort of motivated as well, a couple of proposals that were well, at least a couple in terms of deprecating, deprecation uh, of module versions as well, how they should be viewed, a retraction, all that kind of space is then obviously very linked to the presentation of these things and how they're then discovered. So yeah, that's just more of a story of how all these things end up tying together, I think. All right. I know we've talked a bit, you know, kind of around the edges around what the what the process looks like for getting something kind of developed as a tool or like, you know, I think there's this general knowledge around, you know, there's proposals and then those get kind of accepted and then we have things. Can we talk a little bit about how the, the tooling group is involved in that and how, you know, we mentioned that, you know, people come with ideas and they eventually get turned into proposals. Is there like an official way that people can bring things up or is it still just kind of open-ended? Is it just like, you know, we talk in the tool Slack channel, then we kind of bring it to the group, and then we kind of put together a proposal later, or is it just kind of like ad hoc per proposal? Is there kind of any specific way that, that if someone did want to create a new tool that they would go about kind of working with this group and then working with the Go team? And I think one thing is if you're, if you're making a new tool, you don't need a proposal at all. Like, and, unless, unless you want the Go team to ship it, it doesn't go through the proposal process. 
And even if you do want the Go team to ship it, like changes to Go Please don't necessarily involve the proposal process. So a lot of the things we discussed don't end up anywhere near that kind of complicated process at all. And it's not unusual for people to turn up to one of the meetings with a new tool they've written and just say, hey, I wrote this tool. Does anybody think it's cool? I guess what's more interesting is when you come with a tool that's so good that we think it should be you know, integrated into the, the main systems and available to every developer, then it gets more interesting. But even so, I think it's, it's always a per case basis. I don't think we have any real formal procedures around this. Maybe another example is when you have questions that are more like ideas, rough ideas, but you're not sure what the answer is or if you're in the right direction. And here's an example. I wrote a code obfuscator that uses a Go build flag called toolexec. And toolexec essentially allows you to man in the middle the compiler and the linker. So you can run arbitrary code before and after they run. So you can essentially do lots of things with that. And I decided to build a code obfuscator, but I was sort of stretching the edges and the purpose of that flag. And sometimes I would run into bugs or into limitations and I would come into the tools call and I would be like, hey, I run into this problem. Is this something that you guys knew about or is it reasonable to file a bug and fix it? Or if I want to extend it this way, if I file a, a small proposal, is it maybe a good idea? And it's a good way to sort of get a quick feeling about other people's stance on this. And also, sometimes when you bring up a very rough idea, somebody else will jump out and say, hey, I would also like to see this. I'll help you draft a proposal. And that, I think, is how the new go install command came about. Because I believe, I think it was me, but it was a while ago, who said, my readmes are full of go get commands that never do what you want them to do. And I said, I would like to build work on something better. And Paul had done go bin before. And I believe it was Jay who said, yes, I'll, I would also like to see this. Let's do a, a proposal draft together. And I think that went through a couple of iterations in the tools call for a couple of months, and then it got filed officially. The other thing that happens, of course, is you turn up to the meeting and say, hey, I've had this idea for something I really want to implement. And somebody else will say, yeah, Roger's already got a package that does that. <laughs> Roger is the silent, what would you call it, killer of, of ideas. He's always thought of that idea you think is new. All right, so... Ian, we mentioned in your intro that you are the manager of the open source GoTools team at Google. So what is the interaction between this GoTools working group and the team that you manage? I mean, a significant fraction of the team turn up to that working group most times. It's not a, a large team. We don't have lots of people. But yeah, it's one of the main ways in which they get useful input because we found that as the Go community as a whole has grown, the channels that we used to use to talk to people are now so busy that they're just not a useful or consumable signal. Now, when you only have a few people and you have uh, 2 million users, it's very hard to hear all their voices. So one important thing that the tools group does is it acts as a, a focused expert voice that we can truly listen to and hear everything they have to say. Yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I like, or at least I try to do when coming into the working group or to a meeting of the working group is that I try not to just bring my voice, but like the voice of all my colleagues, because I know, A, they may not be as passionate about Go as I am to the point that they join meetings during the day just to chat about tools and, and proposals. But B, they might not even be Go developers to begin with. It just happens to be part of their job, right? And so their level of expertise of how to make Go work best for them, they haven't had the time or that's just not their, the thing that they do. And so... Basically, whenever I bring an experience report, like Ian said, I, I try to also not bring it from a level of like what I'm trying to do, but at least like the group that I know, like that won't have time or don't even know where to like open issues or discuss these things. So it, it, it kind of acts as a buffer because, yeah, like these Slack channels have gotten absolutely crazy because there's just as Go itself grows, you have more and more people asking it. And I have to say it is impressive. Every now and then, I've muted these channels a long time ago, but every time I go back and like look at them, I still see like a lot of the Go team still answering all the questions, and I'm just completely perplexed of how they could actually still do that. I think as well, the over the three years, it sort of feels like the group has gotten a whole lot better at working out how to communicate effectively, whether it be discussing ideas or talking through you know, thorny technical issues or working out where to get the right feedback from people that that has become quite a fluent process now and 
it also feels like over that time as well, we've started to get, well, there's certain people who who are stalwarts, if you like, of the, the tools channel on Slack, who are, if you like, they may not make it onto the calls, but they contribute in, in, in a way as well. So it's not just the call itself. I think this is worth stressing that this is the, the tools working group is just a channel through which feedback is gathered, but it has sort of honed its, the feedback loop, as Ian was saying, with those people who are really interested in it can be speaking for, as Marwan said, lots of other Go developers within their company or a big open source project, whatever it might be. It has just become an effective communication channel in that respect, but by no means the only one, because there are lots of very active people who, as Marwan was saying, there's not only the Go team who are responding to questions in the tools channel and sort of related ones. I can think of three or four people who are just responding to absolutely everything. And they don't actually participate in the tools working group at all, but they are incredibly good, strong voices in terms of understanding the space itself, but thinking about things, sharing their feedback on things. And so, yes, it's not just the the, the call itself. It's I think the, the combination of all these different channels is what actually has been working quite well. I could be wrong, but I think there is also a mailing list for the Go Tooling group, right? So every now and then I do see an email. Where, so that's another option if you don't like to participate in video calls. You could actually yeah. send an email. Yeah, you can think of that list as a Golang nuts, but only for tools. <laughs> but on the upside, there's not many of us. So a smaller amount of content, but I would say maybe more focused. All right. Uh, I think somebody, I think it might have been you, Paul, that mentioned kind of the genesis of this group had a lot to do with modules and kind of modules breaking Uh, a lot of the tooling that exists and kind of needing a way for people to communicate about tools and about how can we, you know, adopt this new package management system that's kind of coming at us. So if you want, maybe we can like walk through a little bit of the history of how like, you know, because I've definitely seen an improvement over the past few years of modules. And I think a lot of that has come from the GoTools working group and kind of everybody kind of talking with each other. Because remember, in the, in the beginning, it was a little rough to, you know, work with modules. You know, everybody's used to GoPath. So I don't know if anybody wants to give, like, maybe a little bit more history about, like, you know, what were some of those conversations that happened that kind of, you know, brought us to where we are now, where, you know, working with modules is actually a pleasant experience for the most part. Like, most of the things work. People aren't kind of tripping over things all of the time. Yeah, I'd be, I'd be interested if anybody, you know, has some history or context around that. I think maybe a good starting point is what most tools used as a library for their entry point. Because back in the day, there was this library called Go Loader, which back in its day was like the best thing ever after the thing that came before. But Go Loader, all it did was you gave it a bunch of packages, and then it would load them directly from GoPath. It wouldn't use the command Go tool at all. So it essentially hard-coded the behavior of GoPath. And all of those tools, when modules came along, they simply did not work with modules. And then when the discussion started about, okay, what does the next Go loader look like? And it ended up being Go packages. But the design was quite difficult because many of the tools had also built some hard-coded notions about how GoPath worked. For example, they might assume that the code is already on disk and doesn't need to be downloaded. Or they might assume that all the code is in the GoPath directory tree structure. So I remember initially there were some discussions about, yeah, let's make a high-level definition of what a package is and how to load it. And then maybe we could support both GoPath and modules and maybe other build systems. But then let's look at the tools that need more than that and see how we can support them without essentially getting stuck in supporting all possible edge cases. Yeah, I think of the beginning of the tooling group, at least from my side, is the beginning of Go packages, right? That like there was a lot more discussion about Go packages early on at the time. Like Daniel said, like it was sort of like with modules was like the beginning of the death of GoPath. And so Go Packages was kind of the way to, f- to fix all of that. And in that transition, and I think still today, Go Packages is a way that abstracts whether you're using GoPath or not. So like if you want to load a program using Go Packages, you don't have to like assert if it's modules or not. You don't, you know, so it made it, made it a lot easier for, for tools to use them. And also like it definitely deserves a lot more credit than whatever it gets today because it is kind of like the bedrock of all the tools that it's being Used today. So, like, Go Please uses it. I think Package Site uses it. A lot of basically any, anything you do that has to do with tooling, if you just dig through the layers, you'll end probably somewhere with Go Packages. 
And I also think it's worth bringing up that Go Packages is designed quite differently from Go Loader in previous iterations of this API, which is that it calls the Go command. It calls the Go list command that Ian mentioned earlier, because Go list is essentially a build system. You tell it, Go list this package and give me the compiled version. And then it's actually going to load it from disk, build it, uh, download whatever it needs to download, like dependencies and so on. And the really cool thing about that is that if you update your Go version, then supposedly, as long as the Go list command line interface is the same, things should still work. Whereas back in the day with Go Loader, you had to make sure your libraries were up to date and you rebuilt your tools. Otherwise, they might not understand new features of, of GoPath. So those kind of low-level, early, but also long-term decisions, design decisions, are what I think really benefited from the Go Tools group. Because, for example, I was initially against calling the Go list command because I said it's too much overhead. But, you know, after talking to others, I realized, wait, there are some important trade-offs at play here. And there's some really big advantages that we gain by doing this in the long term. I think as well, there's, for me, a large aspect of, yes, there was modules and there was, as Daniel and Marwan have said, adapting required there from tools in order to make things work with modules. But actually, that's in sort of the same time, simultaneously, we had this Go Please came about as well. And I think the experience that you refer to, Chris, there from the developer experience of things being good is almost always oriented from a user's editor and their experience there. So in some respects, yes, there is those sort of the, the packages that have helped improve the tooling experience, but it's actually largely been a, an improvement of the conversation and coordination between these tool authors. And again, in, in sort of a small way, I think that the, the tools working group has really helped with that, pulling the right people in, having the right discussions. Ian, maybe you want to talk about this. Of course, VS Code's plugin for Go was then adopted by the Go team itself. This all started off the back of Ramia, who, who joined us at the, the first session of the tools working group back in the day, who was a passionate supporter of what it was that was happening. I think that whole experience is something that has only been possible by better coordination. So I think there are technical things that needed to be overcome with modules. There are technical things that have improved by Go packages, but fundamentally there's a massive coordination effort that's been happening here to, to improve that experience. And yet there's still a lot more to do. But my sense is the working group has helped in that. And yes, we can, as the working group, still improve the way we do things as well. But it's the most effective, one of the most effective ways at the moment of encouraging that sort of collaboration and constructive feedback on things. I think you actually um, mentioned what I think is the, the really key point there as well, which is the developer experience. I think one of the things the tools group brings is it tends to start from the true developer experience, the complete workflow experience. You know, what, what does the developer do that needs to be better? And it brings that perspective in a way that doesn't, you know, if you're just designing a library or you're designing one part of a whole experience, it's very hard to think that through. Whereas I think the tools group often will shift the design of underlying things because it's seeing how it fits into that larger flow. This episode is brought to you by Honeycomb. Honeycomb is built on the belief that there's a more efficient way to understand exactly what is happening in production right now. When production is running slow, it's hard to know exactly where problems originate. Is it your application code, your users, or the underlying systems? Teams who don't use Honeycomb scroll through endless dashboards guessing at what they mean. They deal with alert floods, guessing which ones matter, and go from tool to tool to tool, guessing at how the puzzle pieces all fit together. It's this context switching and tool sprawl that is slowly killing your teams and your business. With Honeycomb, you get a fast, unified, and clear understanding of the one thing driving your business, production. Honeycomb quickly shows you the correct source of issues, discover hidden problems, even in the most complex stacks, understand why your app feels slow to only some users. With Honeycomb, you guess less and know more. Join the swarm and try Honeycomb free today at honeycomb.io slash changelog. Again, honeycomb.io slash changelog. And by our friends at Firehydrant. 
Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for teams of all sizes. With Fire Hydrant, teams achieve reliability at scale by enabling speed and consistency from your service deployment to an unexpected outage. When your team learns from an incident, you can codify those learnings into repeatable automated runbooks. These runbooks can create a Slack incident channel, notify particular team members, create tickets, schedule a Zoom meeting, execute a script, or send a webhook. For example, your app goes down, an alert gets sent to a specific Slack channel, which can then be turned into an incident. That will trigger a workflow you define in a runbook. A pin message inside Slack will show off all the details, the Jira ticket, the Clubhouse ticket, the Zoom meeting, and all of this is contained in your dedicated incident channel everyone on the team pays attention to. Spend less time thinking about what to do next and get to work actually resolving the issue faster. What would normally be multiple manual tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident can be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Give them a try for free for 14 days, get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. So a couple months ago, back in July, we had an episode on Civ and, uh, you know, the V2 problem, as some people have dubbed it. This group seems like it's kind of primed for uh, helping to resolve, you know, the issues that people encounter when they're using Civ or, or other newer features of modules. Is there anything that the, the group is currently working on to try and, and help address the kind of speed bumps and other problems people are running into? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, a complexity here where it's easy to see what feels bad from a user's standpoint and assume that you have to change the core technology. And I think one of the things the tools group often does is say, we can put something in the middle here. Right? The, the core solution will do what you want. It just won't do it nicely. Whereas a tool can sit in the middle and turn what is currently an, an unpleasant experience to a nice one if we do it well. And I think that's one of the, the big places where the group helps a lot. I think there is plenty we can do in that regard. I wasn't so involved with the the issue you're referring to there, Chris. But I would say there have been plenty of thorny issues that we've had to tackle over the years as well. And they've been difficult. Some of them have been technical so issues we've had to work with. Others have been around, as Ian was saying, workflow, UX of tooling, etc. And in their own way, they have all been significant. And what we found is that Again, this is just a good forum for having that sort of discussion, as I said, because it, it nicely deals with the fact that the nuance via GitHub issues or even more challenging Twitter tweets right, is very easily lost, particularly technical details or the wider context of a problem. If, if, because some of, these, some of these are a nice, small, very discrete issues that we can discuss quite succinctly. Others have got much wider implications. And trying to repeatedly deal with that in, for example, a, a Twitter thread or a GitHub issue, it doesn't often work. And I think from that perspective, engaging to look at someone as you're giving feedback, because guess what? Dissent and disagreement on things is very, very healthy. And I think uh, certainly from my experience, that has been most successfully done on calls because the nuance is much more easily conveyed of certain points and where somebody is coming at and their their feelings on things just comes across a lot clearer. And so to that extent, I've been very supportive and I think hopefully I speak for others as well of, of people bringing up sort of difficult, challenging points on the tools call because it, it has served as a very good forum for that. And I hope we can learn lessons on how to do that better in the future, make it more inclusive. I think we've got sort of specific breakout sessions that are starting to happen now because the tools call itself is getting quite busy where we say, look, this is a big issue. Let's host a special call for those who are particularly interested in it to talk about it in more detail. So we're seeing more of that. And so I think that it's just the nature, though, of the call itself being a good forum in which to have these sorts of discussions. However thorny they might be, it's something that we're open to tackling and hearing about, for sure. I think it's worth bringing up as well that you don't have to bring up an idea or an early proposal to the tools group for it to be successful or for it to be more likely to succeed. But if you think the idea will be controversial, I would say it's a good idea for the sake of 
sort of getting your early feedback very quickly and very honestly. Because like Paul said, I don't believe GitHub is a very good channel for getting constructive feedback. You quite easily go in, in circles, for example, once there's more like tw more than 20 comments, and then suddenly you can't see what people said before, that kind of thing. And also, it's sort of easy, I don't want to say easy to, to get up to speed, but because each tool is one month after the previous one, if you bring up an idea, you are forced to briefly summarize what your idea is, what was tried before, what your current status is, what you're trying to achieve. And those sort of high-level visions can be easy to not see clearly on a large GitHub thread or a large GitHub post. I think the challenge is for the working group is, is amongst the various channels that exist for talking about tools. And we, we sort of described how that's quite a very broad remit. How do we create the right sort of dynamic that allows for an exchange of ideas and opinions? And included in that is dissent as well, constructive dissent. And that's really the challenge to, to those who participate regularly on the call is, are we making sure this is open to everybody? Are the calls welcoming enough? Is the conversation within the tools channel on Slack, is that welcoming enough to everybody? Does everybody feel good when they're reading things there? You can still disagree with something and still leave people feeling good about it. And I think it's trying to be conscious about how we what the impact of those sorts of conversations have are, because there's a very wide group of people, whether it be from the Go team itself to now the many, many people who are not at Google, not on the Go team, and who are contributing to projects. So it's there's quite a lot to, to consider. And again, sort of comes back to why I think that the calls themselves end up being a nice way with a nice regular cadence of just bringing everybody together and saying, here we are, this is what we're discussing. And in some cases, just regrouping on certain topics. So it sounds like if people, you know, want to help see this, any issues they might see with, you know, semantic info versioning or the V2 problem, that a good place to go would be these kind of tools calls and really like get into that channel versus some of the other channels that exist. Is that a good summary of, of what you kind of said there, Paul? Yeah, that, that and any other issues. I mean, it's, as I said, we've covered a number of challenging topics over the years, and it's really open for anybody to bring up anything they like that there's I think it helps that there's good communication in the group and that's something that has developed over time and so I think everybody I hope everybody feels like it's safe to bring up anything that they want to within that group there regardless of whether it is disagreeing with whoever I certainly do and it's I guess it's a challenge for all of us to make sure that everybody feels like that and think about ways that we can make that easier for people to to bring their disagreement in a constructive way to the group in order that you know we actually make progress on whatever problem it is that that, that somebody wants to bring. I also think a good mental model is not that you come to the call to fix a problem or find a solution to a difficult design problem it's that you want to nudge an idea in the right direction right? because the call is just an hour and you're only going to have maybe five minutes for your topic. But if you can get the right people to notice it and you can nudge it in the right direction, in next month, it's probably going to be in a better position, even if it's an iteration of the same idea. All right. And I, I have a question for you, Ian. This is like a, a listener question, but uh, what are your thoughts and how do you, do you see a path forward for kind of not fragmenting the tools ecosystem? I believe in a, in a previous episode, some people suggested that that sort of thing might be might happen in the future. So do you see a path forward for kind of not fragmenting the ecosystem, kind of keeping everything as a cohesive whole? Well, I think it's really important. To, I think fragmentation is the most damaging thing there is. Two communities of half the size are considerably less likely to succeed. But I think it's a very difficult topic because you know, Go is an opinionated language in many ways. It has specific use cases in mind. And trying to be everything to everyone is how you end up badly fragmented anyway. You have to be a certain level of opinion, opinionatedness to succeed, I think, in this space. But also, it's a difficult line to draw of, of when, when a strong opinion is necessary and where the opinion is necessary. Now, you can support lots of workflows on a single opinionated base if the base is of the right structure. And I think that's, that's where the real danger of fragmentation comes. Because if you can support people having their own workflows, but the artifacts they produce at the end of those workflows are all the same, 
then you're not fragmenting, and that's fine. But if you talk about you know diverging the core way that things work at the bottom level, then you can no longer be the same thing to everybody, and you can't write tools that work with both modes. So you're almost back to the, the state when we started the tools working group. You know, there were some things you could only do in Vim and some things you could only do in VS Code and some things you could only do in Emacs because they were all so divergent. And one of the things we tried to do was bring them all together. So it doesn't matter which editor you pick, the same feature set is available to you. And I think that's really important. You know, you can't expect a, a tool author to write one tool that works with, you know, 10 different source code layouts. That's where the dangers of fragmentation come in, and that's why you can't afford to diverge at those levels. All right. So for those listeners interested in actually getting involved with the, uh, the tools working group, what are some ways that they can you know, go about actually like participating? So I would say we have the calls themselves every month. They get published on a shared Google calendar, which is linked from the wiki. And the wiki is under the GitHub repo. I believe the name of the wiki page is golang-tools. We also have the tools channel on Slack, and we also have the mailing list. I believe it's also called Golang Tools, but it's all linked from the wiki. I think something worth bringing up is that some people might not feel comfortable joining the calls. So just to mention two quick things, you can join the calls and just listen. You don't have to show your face. You don't have to show, you don't have to speak. And you can also read the minutes afterwards because we have the agenda we generally have somebody that takes notes. We record the calls as well, so you can catch up on the bits that you find interesting whenever you want. You can also just ask us to talk about something. There are definitely topics where you know, we have some contributors that are very vocal and active, but never turn up to the call. And they'll just ask one of us to effectively represent them at the call and talk about a specific topic. Or we might end up with an action item that says, ask this person in Slack about this topic because they'll surely have an opinion about it. Yeah, Marwan, I think you made that point really well earlier on. You were referencing an example from work there, but I think it it sort of generally exists in the community as well, where if I think about an issue that I would like to perhaps bring up on a call, I generally, perhaps maybe it's because I'm a bit lazy, I generally think of who would actually be able to make that point for me better because it's perhaps their area of specialism. And again, I think that's something that's a nice benefit of the community is that I now know those people and know who I would speak to or who I would ask first and just sound them out perhaps before the call. And that just helps almost like a pre-filter on whatever I might bring up on the call. But that person may actually end up being the, the strongest proponent for the idea or they may be the person who dissents the loudest and says no I think this is um, the worst idea ever but at the same time it is a good way of getting to know people and understand where those areas of expertise exist but also to speak and be a supporter of whatever it is you're, you're talking about as well. Uh, with that let's move into our final segment here uh, unpopular opinions. All right, Paul, why don't we start with you? This is one that people have heard me say before, so apologies, but I haven't done it on GoTime. But I think that compared to GitHub's PRs on the branch-based model, I think that Garrett encourages and supports a better workflow for contributions and review of those contributions. I feel like I agree with that. I like Garrett more than GitHub PRs, but also Marwan is in this call. I know. <laughs> I can't comment. I work at GitHub, so I can't comment. I thought it would be particularly spicy for that reason. <laughs> yeah, I should check if I'm legally allowed to comment on this before I say anything. But I do, I mean, I, I enjoy submitting reviews on Garrett. I think I can say that far. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Dan, do you have an unpopular opinion? I do. So I think meeting somebody face-to-face, -face, even if it's just a couple of video calls, allows working better with that person. And I used to be somebody who said, if this can be an IRC conversation or a DM or an email, why do you want me to turn on my webcam? But I think it really allows you to get to know the person and know how they work and how they are. And then you can communicate more effectively and avoid rough edges. But sometimes I'm in my PJs and it's 8 in the morning. 
so there's also that. Well, they don't have to know, though. I mean, I am currently sitting on the couch. Don't have a desk, really, so I'm comfortable with not looking good on camera. I don't feel like that's going to be unpopular, but we will poll the audience on Twitter and see what they say. Marwan, do you have an unpopular opinion? Sure. Mine is, and this is meant to be unpopular by design, I think that Go is no longer simple. Mm. That's the tweet. Is that generics? I'll just leave it at that. Maybe it's worth it. I mean, if we could definitely discuss it. I mean, so it's worth mentioning there is like a very active generics channel on the Gopher Slack. There are people who are like constantly answering questions. And like, I, I see it being like incredibly active. I do know it's coming 1.18 in 1.18, I think. But like, I've been completely pretending I live in a different world and I just don't know anything until I have to deal with it. And so I can't really say that well, when generic comes, Go is no longer simple. So, I mean, that could be a very true thing, or it may not be as as complex as we all expect it to be. Um, but I think just the combination of, like, because Go became so popular, because it's so, instead of just, like, a small community, you have a much larger community, right? Just, like, the discussion and, and, and just the, really just the time that we've, we've spent, like, evolving Go and, and working with it, it's just hard to stay simple, right? Go modules and the tooling and, and everything it takes to make Go what it is today is a lot and a lot to keep up with. Simple is a very relative standard. True story. Oh man, people getting spicy in the Go Time FM channel there. It's meant to be unpopular. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did my job. I was going to say, you're actually playing this game properly, Mo, and I, I just don't understand how to play the game, I think. There's some people that really don't like Garrett, so. Oh no, hang on, what have I done? Well, we'll, we'll see. ian do you have an unpopular opinion go is not always the right choice sometimes you should use something else Mm. i don't think you understood the point of this section (laughs) might just be that people i hang out with a lot it's really hard to agree (laughs) i do agree but it's just difficult to say it out loud i guess i the abstract right it's like oh there are other tools that are likely better but if it was like direct comparison to another link like if it's like you know go is not always the right choice sometimes javascript is the right choice you know i i might have to draw issue with that but i think like in general i think i can agree agree with that you know there are theoretically better languages and better tools than go I am eagerly waiting for TinyGo to fully compile Vecti, if anyone is keeping up with that, so that I could finally write Go on the front end and can advocate for Go on the front end. So I still write Go on the front end. It just happens to be like very bloated, not production worthy, depending on how you define production worthy. You know, so once you could like maybe have a full Go application, Go Go UI application that is maybe just a hundred kilobytes as opposed to like six or seven megabytes there's a very compelling case to take go to a place where you're not supposed to use it. <laughs> I think if Ian truly wanted to be controversial or unpopular, he would say, but I also enjoy writing other languages as much as I do with Go. <laughs> because I definitely <laughs> don't miss writing Python, for example. Ian, could you help sort of fill in the gap there? What, what, what languages are you, in, are you referring to? <laughs> I guess if you dig into my past, you'll see I spent 16 years making computer games, and I still think it would be a bad choice for that. But I am looking forward to when I can replace Home Assistant with something written in Go. What is that written in? Is it like Python or something? I don't even know. <laughs> the core, I don't know what it's written in. I feel like that's a good use case for Go, though, and I like talking to embedded systems and all of that. Yeah, I'm with Marwan um, on the whole front-end, writing front-ends in Go. I was particularly interested in Go4JS for that back in the day, and it's been super interesting to see where Tiny Go is on sort of one axis, tiny go, how that's progressing, but also how different approaches and different frameworks have come about. So Azure is a nice one from Elias now. That's in a very different model to writing front ends, but at the same time, one that works really nicely in a cross-platform way. And I think that's that cross-platformness that appeals to me significantly. But Marlon, I guess like you, is the is the patterns that you can write with Go that sort of appeal to me from a from a front-end perspective. So no, Ian, I disagree with you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any last things anybody wants to say before we uh, sign off? It looks like four people joined the Tools channel on Slack since we started. Exciting. Already getting some traction. 
All right. Well, thank you, Dan, Paul, Ian, and Marwan for uh, joining me on this episode where we can talk about the Tools Working Group. And thank you all for listening. Until next time. If GoTime is your jam, take it to the next level with a ChangeLog++ subscription. That's the best way to directly support the show and make the ads disappear. And during the month of September, we're throwing in a free t-shirt of your choice when you sign up on the yearly plan. So you can rep GoTime in meat space in a comfy tee. Sign up today at changelog.com slash plus plus and we'll send you a coupon code for that free t-shirt. GoTime is produced by Jared Santo with music by Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Stay tuned for the next episode where Angelica and Natalie are talking Tiny Go with Ron Evans, Vladimir Vivian, and Tobias Teal. That's all for now. We'll talk to you next time on Go Time. <laughs>